You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, this morning we're going to be in Psalm 96, if you want to find your way there. That's Psalm 96. And immediately some of you guys are going to be like, Old Testament, the Psalms for international mission. And that could seem like a little bit of a contraindication because when we think about the Old Testament, a lot of times what we think about is a very exclusive God who deals very exclusively with his people, the nation of Israel. We don't see in the Old Testament at first blush a God who is reaching his hand out and welcoming in the nations. And yet I would say that if that is your experience with the Old Testament, then you are not looking closely enough. What I want to declare for the church this morning as a central idea as we work our way through this psalm is one's high truth that it has been the plan of God since before the foundation of the earth to ransom a people for himself by the blood of Jesus Christ from every single tribe, tongue, and nation among the peoples of the earth. It has always been the plan of your God from before the foundation of the earth to ransom a people for himself by the blood of Jesus Christ from every single tribe, tongue, and nation among the earth. And this is not dropping on the scene for us in Matthew 28 where suddenly Jesus does a 180 and opens up his grace to the rest of the world. We see in Jesus the culmination of the eternal plan of God to ransom for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the face of the earth. We see it in the Old Testament where, yes, we see an exclusive God who sets apart for himself a nation, the people of Israel, and he deals with them differently, and he makes them his covenant people, and he makes promises to them. And if you're not in the, among those people, then those promises aren't for you. And yet, we see that same God make provisions that any outsider can make himself an Israelite by the mark of circumcision or by, more importantly, the circumcision of his heart. We see a God who is with increasing clarity throughout the whole testimony of Scripture revealing to the world that he has a plan to bring all people, to bring every knee to bow at the name of Jesus Christ. And then the church is invited into that. So I want to hold out for you three sermon points on the front end of my sermon this morning, and then I want you to look for them as we preach our way through Psalm 96 this morning. Point number one, if you're a note taker, write it down is that the salvation of the Lord belongs to the nations. That the salvation of the Lord is for the nations. Point number two is that the judgment of the Lord is upon the nations. Again, that the judgment of the Lord is upon the nations. And then lastly, that it is the Lord's call on the church to bring that message to the nations. That it's the Lord's call on his church to bring that message to the nation. So again, salvation is for the nations, judgment is upon the nations, and it is the call on the church to bring that message to the nations. Let's find our way there. If you guys would stand with me, I'm going to read our way through our passage this morning, and then I'll preach it for you. Psalm 96, verse 1, David writes, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may be seated. Mercy's door, there is a progression of thought that David calls out to the nation of Israel, that he calls out to the people, and it sounds like this. It starts with, sing to the Lord a new song. He's painting a picture for the nation of Israel that you have received something and you have seen something of your creator God that is so grand, so wonderful. You have come face to face with his glory such that the call for the church is just to respond, just to do what is only natural once you've seen the face of God, once you have received the glory and the riches and the majesty of God is to sing, to sing a new song, not an old song, but to sing a new song to sing of his daily faithfulness, to sing of his wonder, to sing a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Guys, the takeaway here is that salvation is for the nations, that the natural response of all those who receive the salvation of the Lord is to march among all the peoples declaring this truth, that salvation is from the Lord, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that everywhere you go, both as you are going, like we preached in Matthew 28, and as you leave everything that you were doing to go and, and reach a people who haven't heard it, that you declare the salvation of the Lord to the nations. It's for everyone. It is for everyone. It has been the sovereign plan of God for all time to rescue a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to bring this into clear focus, I want us to imagine the church of Christ, the one that he establishes on this earth at his return, where every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Our Heavenly Father, the Father of the Son, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will not withhold one ounce of glory that is due to the Son for the right payment that He made for humankind. So He intends and will achieve the building of a church that will worship Christ forever from every single tribe, tongue, and nation on the face of the earth. The Lord will not allow that one people group, that one nation, that one tongue, 
passes away without confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, he will build a church that is rich in diversity from every nation on the earth, the whole earth. So if the salvation is for the whole world, if salvation of the Lord is for the whole world, what does the world look like today? Has the world received the message of salvation? Let me describe it for you. The earth, the peoples of the earth, can be divided into three groups, really, three groups. We can call them World C, World B, and World A. World C is represented by 33% of the people on this planet. They would identify as Christian today. Of course, World C is comprised not just of the Christians, those who have been born again, but those who would mark Christian on a census. 33% of all the people of the earth say, I'm Christian, self-identify as Christian. And so within that group, are the people who are born again, and within that group are the people who on the day of judgment will say, I did this in your name, and I did that in your name, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, because they claimed Christ as some cultural decision, like they were picking a political party, or they wielded his name for personal gain, but that they were never born again, they never received new life by the Holy Spirit. But 33% of the world in that group, world C, 33% self-identifying as Christian. An additional 38% of the world will call World B. These are people who have access to the gospel, who have a church nearby, who have a Bible readily available to them in their language, who have friends, neighbors, or co-workers who know the gospel, but who have not yet responded to it, who have so far rejected it, who have not converted to Christianity. They have access but they are not Christian. We'll call that world B. 33% in world C, 38% in world B, and that leaves 29% of the peoples of the world in group A, people who have virtually no access to the gospel, who have no Bible in their language, who have no neighbor or coworker or friend, no church nearby, no access to the gospel. So here I am simultaneously declaring that the salvation of the Lord belongs to the nations of the earth while also revealing to you that among the earth are these people who call themselves Christians but may or may not be, these people who have access to the gospel but have rejected it, and this 29% of the world that has no, virtually no access to the gospel. So has the world been reached with the message of salvation, yes or no? No, the answer is no. It most certainly has not. Which means that the Lord's mission for extending his hand of salvation to all the peoples of the earth is still in play. And so, going back to our psalm, this charge to the people who have received the gospel to sing to the Lord a new song among all the earth, to sing to the Lord blessing his name and telling of his salvation from day to day, declaring his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples is not just like a nice idea. It's literally the means by which the Lord intends to get the gospel to the ends of the world. That These 29%, those who are denying Christ within the 33%, and those who have thus far rejected the gospel among the 38% would receive the gospel, would come to salvation, would come to know salvation. So no, this promise 
that the gospel will get out to every corner of the earth has not yet been fulfilled. It is still in motion. Now, when you hear about that 29% of the earth that has no, virtually no access to the gospel, the first thing that typically you're going to hear somebody ask is, so what about what happens to that innocent guy in the Amazon jungle who's never heard the gospel? What happens to that innocent guy in the remote parts of the desert? What happens to that guy in the remote village in Africa? Pastor David Platt said it in a message that I love. He says, the answer to that question is very simple. That man is saved. The only problem is that man doesn't exist. See, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25 declares very clearly that the knowledge of God has been placed in the heart and mind of every single person who has ever existed. That the knowledge of God has been placed in the hearts of all humanity. And yet, we have not acknowledged him. We have not thanked him. We have rejected him. and We have worshipped the idols of our own hands such that everyone stands without excuse. Romans further declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no innocent man in a remote village somewhere in the world. If he was innocent, then he has no need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there is no need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there are two ways to salvation— to receive payment for your sin or just to be ignorant of it. But the counsel of Scripture makes it very clear no one is ignorant of their God. And yet, for this portion of the world that has rejected the gospel or who has not received the gospel, I tell you this. Their knowledge of God is only sufficient to condemn them in their sin. And I need you to hear this clearly, okay? Our response, our activity around the Great Commission, our response, our activity when we read this psalm, how we think about how we live our lives among the nations will be driven by our understanding of what we have been saved from and what we have been saved into. And I want, to hear, I want you to hear this clearly. We have been rescued from the reality that our intrinsic knowledge of God at one time only served to bring us under the condemnation of our sin. And for 29% of the peoples of the earth, for a little over 2 billion people, their knowledge of God is only sufficient to condemn them in their sin. They know God, but they have no knowledge of a Savior. And this is a stark and difficult reality, while at the same time, we acknowledge that our God, who from the beginning of time has willed to ransom a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation, will succeed in plucking from every sinful people group on the face of the earth a people for himself to worship him and glorify his son forever. He will do it. He will do it. And before I go any further, lest any of you guys hear me preaching this morning and think that God's love has gotten him into a big mess that he is powerless to get himself out of and he needs to recruit human help in order to achieve what he has said he needs to do. Hear me, God does not need you. He does not need me to achieve what he has set to do among the nations. But in his love for the church, 
he has compelled us to participate in his ministry of reconciliation among all the peoples of the earth, among all the nations. He has called us to do it. And it looks like singing, guys. That's why I picked a psalm. There were a number of different passages I might have chosen that, we, that might sound like compulsion, and yet the most beautiful passages that invite the church into participation in the saving work of God across the face of the earth sound like singing. It looks like the natural, intrinsic response to seeing God rightly, that as you are going, as you orient how you spend your time and who you spend your time with and what you say and where you're saying it, that you get your eyes fixed on Jesus and what comes out of your mouth is exactly what they need to hear. And so here in a song written to the Hebrew people, David writes, sing a new song among all the earth. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, verse 5. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the people are worthless idols. Our lesser gods, our idols, and the gods of false religions across the face of the globe, false ideologies. Guys, we are not all marching to the same destination by a bunch of different paths. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. It's as if to say all of the idols of the people, all the false gods of the people, all the false gods of the, all across the face of the planet, they are man's quest for seeking for splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. But our psalmist declares, no, they are before him. They are found in his sanctuary. To bring the gospel to these people who have put their trust in false idols is to say to them, I know what you're looking for and I know where it's found. And it won't be found there. These are worthless idols. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world's established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Skipping down to 13, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So the judgment of the Lord for the face of the earth is, is declared in this song, this joyful song of splendor and holiness and gladness is singing as all of nature joins in in the songs. The animals of the, of the water and of the land and the trees and the rocks, everything crying out with, in wonder and singing along with the people of God as they march around singing. It's this huge eruption of song among all of God's creation as they declare what? That he will judge the peoples with equity. That he will come and judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Guys, this is point number two, that while salvation is for the nations, judgment is coming 
for the nations. That the Lord's salvation is for the nations and the Lord's judgment is upon the nations. Guys, both are simultaneously true and both are wonderful truths worth singing and yet also enough to make the world tremble. Hear me on this, guys. We have a just and holy God. A just and holy God. And thank God that we have a just and holy God. He has promised from eternity past that he will deal with every drop of sin that has ever transpired on the face of his creation. He will deal with sin. And you want that. The world wants that. The problem of sin, the presence of sin, the consequences of sin in your life, in the lives of the people around you, the, the, the awful thrashing and terrifying destruction of sin is ever-present all around us. We want sin judged and dealt with. We want that. There's no way around it. We want that. We can't say we don't. And so he will. Our God, our just God will deal with sin. He will wipe the earth of every drop of sin. His judgment hovers over the face of the earth and he will deal swiftly with it on that final day. And all sin will be dealt with in one of two manners. At the cross or in hell. At the cross or in hell. The sin on each individual and every people group, every nation in the world will be dealt with by our just God and the earth will be purged of every drop of sin either at the cross or an eternity in hell. And for those whose knowledge of God is only sufficient to condemn them in their sin, and if they were to die today, would ultimately face damnation in hell. For 10 million years, they will make payment for their own sin in hell, but they are not Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can face the just penalty and wrath of God for sin and conquer that and rise victorious over it and live again, ushering in new life. Humans, humankind cannot do that. And so if we are making payment for our own sin, we will make that payment forever and will not satisfy the right, just punishment for sin. After 10 million years, they will look up and realize they are no closer to the end than they were when it began. They would die, but they cannot And for every person who is in Christ at the moment of their death, for 10 million years, they will worship in gladness before the throne of God and be no closer to the end than when they began. So while I do want to call you guys to trust in the Lord to carry out his plan for the nations, I also want you to take on the heart of the Lord for the gravity of the situation. We are dealing with eternal spiritual consequence when we talk about the gospel being marched among the nations. This is not a trifling or trivial matter. People are dying in their sin. And our psalmist says to sing a new song to them. Among all the earth, to sing a new song to them. I assure you they're singing a song on their march to hell. We're to step in declaring his glory 
among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. If salvation is for the world and God's judgment is on the, wor- is on the world, how does God intend to bring the two together? And the answer is the church. The answer is the church. You and I have been commissioned by Jesus himself in Matthew 28 and by God all throughout the Old Testament and all of the laws and customs that he gave to welcome in and pursue outsiders and to restore them into the nation of Israel. It has always been the plan of God that the church would extend the hand of salvation through the preached, spoken, salvation gospel of the Lord to the fallen and lost world. That is the fact. So how are we doing is the question, and let me lay it out for you very clearly, okay? One in 1,800 Christians on this planet will serve in cross-cultural ministry. One in 1,800 Christians on this planet will serve in cross-cultural ministry missions. They will leave their culture to bring the gospel to another people's. One in 1,800. Of those one in 1,800 Christians, 72% of them will serve cross-culturally in World C. I described World C in the beginning of the sermon. World C is those who self-identify as Christian. Okay, and that's a necessary service area. Don't hear me say that's not. 72% of those 1 in 1,800 will go to those who call themselves Christian in order to preach the gospel to them to ensure that they won't find themselves among those people who on that last day God will say, I never knew you. You invoked my name, but I never knew you. Showing them what it really means to be born again by the Spirit. It's wonderful ministry work, but 72% of the 1 in 1,800 will go to world C. 25% of the one in 1800 will go to world B. People who have access to the church, access to a Bible in their language, access to Christian resources in their languages, maybe friends and family who know the gospel, and they'll bring the gospel there. And that leaves just 3% of those one in 1800 people who will serve in cross-cultural ministry to go to world A. That 29% of the people of the earth who have virtually no access to the gospel. So it's a dilemma, and it's a dilemma of church disobedience. How could it not be? And I don't have to take a lot of guesses, and neither do you, at why that would be. World A, firstly, is, tends to be a dangerous place, be the first thing. So to bring the gospel to world A could be really dangerous. It might cost you a lot. It might cost you your life. It certainly would cost you your comfort your career, your family, your friends, maybe your language, your culture, your customs. could cost you your life. Of the 12 disciples that went out and obeyed the Great Commission, church history testifies that about one of them lived to see old age and the other 11 died. In carrying out the mission, some of them martyred. So it's costly is the first thing. So who would do that? Well, the answer is to who would do that is somebody who has seen rightly the gospel. Somebody who believes that Jesus Christ ransomed them from 10 million years and then 10 million more from the eternal torments of hell and rescued them into 10 million years and 10 million more in the presence of their king to live an everlasting life of glory and love and fulfillment and just 
being able to carry out all that you were created for, just believing, geez, that has been secured for me. My future dwells secure in the hands of the Lord. But for these 29%, their knowledge of the Lord is only sufficient to condemn them. So I will gladly risk it all in this light and momentary affliction of a life to invite others into life everlasting. I was listening to a message a guy was saying he was recently traveling through uh, an area in northern Nepal, and that part of the world has about 8 million people, and it's estimated that among the 8 million people, and I'm sorry, I said Nepal, I meant Yemen. I'm going to talk to you about Nepal in a minute. Northern Yemen, 8 million people in northern Yemen, and it's estimated there are 20 to 30 Christians in all of northern Yemen, 20 to 30 among 8 million people. For context, guys, we probably have more Christians up in Sunday school classroom this morning than in all of northern Yemen. In November of 2019, I was convicted by the Lord, my wife and I both, on this topic. Just cut to the heart that I did not possess the Lord's heart for the nations that I was more concerned personally with preserving Christianity into the next generation, with making sure that we preserve ourselves as some kind of Christian nation, fighting for Christian orthodoxy or Christian moralism within people who already know the gospel, but just really had, and these, these are fine things, but really had no heart for those who, if they died today, would serve an eternity paying for the penalty of their sin because they had no knowledge of the blood of Christ on their behalf. And so super pragmatically, we wanted to know who's in world, world A. Who are they? And that's somewhat knowable. And then we kind of sorted that. Who in world A has less than 2% Christianity? And then of those 2%, less than 2%, which are the biggest nations? Where's the, where's the biggest problem? We were so amazed to find Japan on the list. And our heart has just been burdened since November 2019 for Japan. This prosperous island nation, string of islands in the Pacific Ocean, 127 million people, one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world, one of the most economically prosperous countries in the world, socially advanced people marching, singing a song to hell. Less than 1% of them know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Less than half of 1% of them have ever heard it in an orthodox way. Most who are born in Japan, like the rest of the 29% in world A, will be born, live a full life, and die without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it keeps me up at night. Not like it's my responsibility, but with a heart of God burden that 127 million people on an island nation don't know Jesus. And the worst part on that one is there's nothing preventing you from bringing it. They're like, the government hands out missionary visas. It's not like some parts of the world where you'd be persecuted severely. In this matter, it's really a matter of church obedience alone. Really, in all the, in all the nations it is. And so, since November 2019, week by week, every day, we've been studying the Japanese language in my home. And I have no idea this is a total waste of time. 
no idea if the Lord will ever open a door for me to bring the gospel to Japan to participate in the work that he is doing to ransom a people for himself from among the Japanese people. But what I know is that I'm singing a new song in my home. It sounds like, Lord, who saved me, may you save just one in Japan today. And so walking around my house each day, driving into work each day, konnichiwa, konnichiwa, hello, yeah. Watashi wa namai wa adamu desu. I'm Adam. Hajime mashite. Nice to meet you. Iesu Christo needs suite site imasuka, I think. Do you know Jesus? Because I don't know, but I just say to the Lord, Lord, if I ever had the opportunity to meet one Japanese family, let it be that I could tell them the gospel. It's about right now a heart posture, a mind that has been lifted off of self because self is secure to see the need elsewhere and to say, would you use me? And I know that this is the call of the Lord on the entire church, so I want you to hear this as a, as a major point this morning. International mission is not the call of a few, it is the call of the church. One of your elders, uh, Pastor Daniel, he served Mercy's Door for about a year. He was active, mil- active duty military, so he was shipped out to Colorado on a PCS, and then he's serving in Iraq right now. And He's going to be out in about a year and a half, and he's committed his family to going over to Nepal when he retires from the military to serve with a not-for-profit organization that is giving meaningful, dignifying work to women who have been rescued out of the sex trade and giving them access to the gospel that they otherwise would not have. 1.4% of that nation is Christian. They do not have access to the gospel unless the church brings it to them. Pastor Brett and his wife Kat served three years in China as missionaries. I hope they're not listening. So I had originally, when I was writing this sermon, was thinking to myself, how do I bring in the stories of the Hudson Taylors and the George Mueller's and the great Christian heroes on the mission field throughout the generations in order to stir up this excitement in the church? But I, th- I feel like what we need to hear is that this isn't the work for the heroes. Those were just people who saw Jesus rightly. They were just guys. They were just families. They were just girls who believed that they were secure in their eternity and that this life was worth losing for the sake of the lost. It doesn't take a Christian hero. It's for the church. This is the work of the church. And there are practical takeaways in this, I think, but I think that bigger than that is that any practical takeaway is just going to sound like a I need to. This is what I should do. But the truth is, is that we would do it already if we believed what we need to believe. And so I don't want to check checkbox item on this, guys. The thing is that Jesus has called us to be fishers of men. He has said, I have called you out of your former life. I have called you off out of the earth, and I have secured for you a heavenly country. And you're a citizen of that country now. And now you're my ambassador, and so you exist here primarily to carry out the work that I've been about since the foundation of the world. And so I I want to encourage you that it looks like singing. 
Guys, it looks like singing. You will find the deepest fulfillment of your soul as you participate in the things that Jesus is about. Some of you are feeling a gnawing in your life like something is missing. You've got the God, you've received the gospel. You are, you've been ransomed and reconciled from your sin. You belong to Jesus Christ and still have this sense of emptiness or a lack of fulfillment. And you're confused. Like, what could it be? It's because once you were purchased from death into life, you've been invited to live like a living person. And you're still living like a dead one. Like you, like you need to preserve this life because your, your future is not secure. You're not believing the truth. It looks like singing, guys. It looks like seeing it rightly. And Jesus being so good, so worthy, seeing what he's done for you, that you just respond to it. And the natural response is to march among those who haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good and showing them like the psalmist says, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You know, of those 3% of the 1 in 1800 that will go, a lot of times what happens is those people are going to march among the churches and they're going to talk to those who won't go or who aren't going to go, maybe aren't called to go. And they're going to need the support. And from a financial piece, I was reading about this. There are $42 trillion in income earned annually among people who identify as Christian. $42 trillion annually worldwide are earned by Christians. They give $700 million of that to all causes of Christ. That's your church ties. That's giving to Christward not-for-profit organizations. That's giving to missions. That's really giving to anything that you might call a cause of Christ. That's 2% of that $42 trillion in income are given globally to the causes of Christ, all causes of Christ. Of that 2% that is giving, that is given, less than 7% of that is given to missions of any kind, to world C, B, or A. Less than 2% of total income, less than 7% of the 2% given to missions. And of that 7% that's given to missions, only 1% is given to missions in world A. We're talking about 1% of 0.0014% of income. To kind of help you conceptualize that, Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than are given to world missions in world A annually. And where our treasure is, is where we'll find our hearts. And so this is not to compel you into giving. I don't even know that we'd know where to give. It's to say this is a diagnostic on the heart of the church toward the nations, toward the lost. We are neither going or sending or funding, not on the whole. And I am not preaching to you from a place of greater than. I am telling you that the Lord is doing a mighty work in the elders of Mercy's Door 
that I believe he intends to do in the body of the church. We have about 200 people that go to Mercy's Door. That means that we'd have to grow nine times larger to statistically get one person who would serve in a cross-cultural missionary. One in 1,800, guys. One in 1,800. And since Pastor Daniel's going, if we want to count him, we need to grow by about 3,600 people before we get another one. It's funny until it's not, though, right? So functionally, what I want to call us into this morning is really two questions that I want you guys to take away. The first one is, have we covered the nations in prayer? Prayer costs you nothing but time in the presence of your Father. Prayer costs us nothing but time in the presence of our Father. Are we spending time in the presence of our Father covering the nations in prayer, declaring of Him, like it says in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. This passage was such an encouragement to me as I was studying this. The Apostle John was given a vision of the end times, and he sees God the Father sitting on his throne, and he's holding a scroll. And if you read the book, you know that the scroll contains the will of God, the purposes of God for all creation, for all time, the, including the beginning and the end, that this is what it contains. And it's sealed, and nobody can open it. And everybody's weeping because nobody can open it. And so these good plans of God cannot be fulfilled because no one can open the scroll. It's sealed tight. And so many have tried to, to open it up that God's favor and his good plan for the nations would pour out and none can do it and everyone's weeping and then Jesus rises up in the vision he walks up to the right hand of God and he takes it out of his hand and he opens it up and everybody falls down their face and they start just celebrating Jesus and crying out to him worthy is he who saved a great people from every tribe tongue and nation worthy is he and everyone breaks out into song this is what we're going to witness for eternity we will stand before a Jesus who achieves what he set out to achieve. A people will be ransomed and saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this planet. In fact, Matthew, or Jesus said in Matthew 25, 14, 24, 15, that he will not return until it is done. He said, I will not return. The end times will not come until the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth as a testimony to all the nations. And so we can't map that out. We don't know exactly when that will be, but what we do know and what I am convinced of is that if Jesus isn't back yet, then the work's not done. And so we should be marching among the nations declaring that mercy's door is still open. Enter in. Enter in. Come in. I've got a clip that I'd like you guys to watch. If you guys uh, can pull it up for me. This was instrumental for me in hearing from, this is Pastor Francis Chan. Fishermen at the same pond, 
and our lives are getting tangled, and everyone's, you know, fighting over stupid things, and one guy, you know, tries some new lure, and we go, oh, he caught a fish, let's all try his method, and it just feels like, what are we all doing here? Like, what if I heard of a lake that's like a five-mile hike away, and no one's fishing it? And they're saying, man, the fish are fighting, just throw a hook in there, and they'll go for it. Man, I'll make that five-mile hike if I love fishing. Like, what would keep me at that same pond? I'll tell you what would keep me at the pond is I build a house on the pond, and all my friends have houses on the pond, and when I can fish that much, we just go out and we hang out and we talk and we play, and I don't want to leave my friends. But if my calling is to go fish, and there's no one fishing over there, why wouldn't I go? Yeah. Church, our calling is to go fish. Jesus plucked his disciples out of where they were and what they were doing, and he said, come, and I will make you fishers of men. And then he took them on foot among the nations. He left the religious city center, and he went out to those who were considered too far gone, and he brought the gospel to them. He brought the good news of his own life, death, and resurrection. And then when he rose from the dead, he sent his disciples out again, two by two, to go and proclaim the gospel among the nations. And you have received the gospel because someone before you was faithful to bring it to the new world. There is a legacy in the church where everywhere we have gone and proclaimed the gospel, whether we sealed it with our blood as martyrs or whether we lived long lives preaching the gospel for generations, the gospel has prevailed because it's Christ's mission and not ours. So this morning, my charge for you is to go home, to talk to your wife, to talk to your kids, and to know every week at Mercy's Door upstairs, the kiddos, we open up their session with what we call Lord of the Nations, and we teach them the state of the church in some other part of the world. We teach them how to say Jesus in the native tongue of that part of the world. And then we pray to Jesus in that tongue, and we ask him to continue his faithful work in that part of the world and to send them additional help from the church. And we do that because our prayer is that the next generation will respond to this call to obey and to go and to make disciples with more tenacity than the current generation than we ever did. Lord, let it, let it be for us. Forbid that our kids would grow up to believe this more than we do. Pray with me that it would be so.